Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast, week 26 of Reading Every Day with Jesus. Uh, We have Joshua Huber filling in since Aaron Downs is out of town. And we, as always, have AJ with us. I am Matthew. How's everybody doing? Doing well. I'm doing okay. Nice. I like your haircut. You look very dapper. Thanks. Appreciate it. Uh... Josh, did you end up picking up any of those jalapeno burgers <laughs> from Aldi's? Yeah, that I tipped you off. To. Dude, I I gotta stop by uh, tomorrow. No, I haven't had a chance to do that okay. yet. Right. Unfortunately, not. But right, definitely, ho- we'll do. Hopefully, they're not all picked over. But uh, yeah, they probably are, knowing my luck. So I heard a saying: "I believe in luck. The harder I work, the more good luck I have." <laughs> yeah, interesting. You know what I mean? So it's like, eh, luck. Not really a thing. Redefining, yeah. You just got to work hard and think you'll have better luck if you work harder, which kind of makes sense. Yeah. Well, there does seem to be some casting of lots, I think, in choosing the apostles later on in our reading today. True. They got lucky. They got the right one. (laughs) Something like that. So our Old Testament passage, we are starting in 2 Kings um, in the very first chapter. Now, it kind of kicks off with uh, a lot of stuff with Elijah. Joshua, I believe you said you have thoughts, nuggets, (laughs) and facts about Elijah that you wanted to share. Well, I mean, we were talking before the podcast here, and I think it's interesting. I mean, Elijah, when we look at his his life, he gets brought up again in the New Testament, as we know, um, and Jesus compares John the Baptist, and basically calls him, he, he's the Elijah. He's the Elijah of today. And so when you see how Elijah is dressed here um, in chapter 1, verse 8, um, he a hairy man with a leather belt, that's how they knew it was Elijah. And uh, you see the description here, and the New Testament authors and the Gospels are, are careful to record that John the Baptist is vir- wearing virtually the exact same thing. And they're, they're wanting you to, with this background information, to know Hey, this is this is the Elijah to come that was promised. Um, so as we again look at our scriptures, we see Elijah here, um, and, and realize if he if John the Baptist is Elijah, then who's Elisha, who has the double spirit, the double portion? Maybe this is a stretch here. These thoughts are not really well worked out, but you know, um, I, I think that we're supposed to look at Elisha, see the acts that he he does, the miracles as as some of them are incredibly weird, but then look at them and then really see a, a foreshadowing, a, a little bit of a taste of what Jesus would do in far greater ways. So I think that there's a couple accounts where uh, was an axe head, I think in chapter 5 or something like that, falls to the bottom and he raises it up by throwing in wood. And then, you, of course, you see Jesus walking on water, causing Peter to walk on water too just by um, his mere presence um, again, you're going to see Elisha feed like a hundred people with bread, right? Like, I think he's, he tells this guy, hey, give this bread to these people. He's like, it's not enough to feed them. He's like, do it anyway. And then he like feeds all of them and there's some left over. And again, you're going to see Jesus do that with thousands of people, though, in a far greater way. So I, I don't know. As I was reading this, I was just talking with my wife. I'm like, I don't know. Maybe this is a stretch, but it seems like what Elisha's doing in a lot of ways foreshadows. Now, of course, that doesn't work out across the board because, <laughs> like, I, there's some things I still don't know what to do with, like um, 
the children getting mauled by bears in chapter two. Um, I, I read that and I'm like, oh yeah, that's in the scriptures. I don't think I've ever thought about this like at all. Yeah. Um, but I, what, what do you guys think? I, this is just off the top. I have not thought deeply about this. Well, yeah. Then there's that passage where Jesus has 4,200 youths mauled by bears. <laughs> no. So, no. On the contrary, uh, he says value the children, right? Care about them. And, oh, right, uh, right. Don't look at them as a nuisance. Maybe that's the point. He's better than Elisha. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. That's that is a strange one for yeah. sure. Yeah. 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 That's a lesson: uh, patience over mauling. Yeah, a couple things that I read about that was that it said there could be like as many as like 50, but you don't know how old they are. They're allowed to like roam free in these gangs, so they're maybe somewhat older, but it at the very least reflects, Mm -hmm. as children often do, the attitudes and, you know, viewpoints of their parents. So Mm -hmm. I think it was just this punishment that... Severe. Is yeah, that's enacted on on people who are who are against God's prophet. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I don't think I would take it any more than that. Yeah, right? yeah, like maybe just, just leave that. it at that. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, in chapter one, um, kind of an interesting scene. So the king is sick, wants to know if he's going to get better or not. He's not, is what Elijah says. I don't know. He seems unhappy with it. So Elijah's just sitting on a hill. <laughs> The king sends 50 men and Elijah, uh, whatever, prays to God or says, you know, uh, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven. So it happens twice. And I got to be, I got to be thinking like, all right, the first group, you don't see it coming. It's like, you're not expecting fire from the sky. You think, all right, there's 50 of us, one guy, we should be good. What's that second group thinking? Like the ground is probably still smoking. Like there might be burnt carcasses that just might be completely obliterated. Like, aren't you feeling cautious? Like, like, I don't know. I'm just like, what is that second group got to be thinking? And then the third group finally was like, all right, like they took it seriously and went up there with a lot of humility. I don't know. What'd you guys make of that? The concept that Aaron was explaining before, at least throughout the the Old Testament where, you know, the people, they think conceive of you know events with these spiritual realities so like their god is kind of up against someone someone else's god so like you know maybe Mm -hmm. they were thinking oh okay well you know this happened the one time but i really believe in my god's gonna protect me this time that's not gonna happen so Mm -hmm. it's like maybe their faith in their false god was actually you know Mm -hmm. somewhat Mm -hmm. strong even they were very wrong Mm -hmm. the lesson is let's be the third guy right like (laughs) Let's be the guy who yeah. comes down like kneeling and being super reverent. Like, yeah, with humility. Don't. Yeah, I think you're on to something there because the guy's second, he comes and does the exact same thing, showing that he hasn't learned anything for the first time. You like, you would approach it differently, I think. Like, okay, you know, he did that, you know, this formulaic response, you know, come down here, gets burned. I'm going to do the exact same thing and hope for a different outcome. It's like, no, that's that's not how it works. And uh, the third guy learns that. So I, I think you're right that... Um, there's something to be said that he thought maybe his own God would protect him or um, in arrogance, he just thought it was a one-time coincidence or something like that. Who knows? So one thing that I was thinking about with chapter three, where we have the Lord's instruction to to make this valley full of ditches, which is kind of a weird phrase, right? But what's the point? Um, you know, God was going to do this miraculous event in defeating the Moabites, mm-hmm. but he also just didn't, do it right like he made the people do something as well like he had them prepare for this right blessing almost of deliverance mm-hmm. so 
it was almost kind of a test to show their confidence that that God would work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I was just thinking about this, you know, in my life and, you know, how often do we prepare for God to work? Mm-hmm. So just kind of this general question, like even do we prepare ourselves before we come to worship on Sunday or when we gather with other believers? So it was just kind of something I was thinking about that even in the Old Testament, there was just this thing that kind of stuck out to me. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's what you're, you're talking about there is generally true of, of the Christian life. I mean, we we follow through on what God commands us to do, expecting that he'll bring about fruit, he'll cause rain to come and and make the fruit rise from the work that we've done here on earth. I mean, I think James talks about that as well. Um, we do this all with the expectation that God will bless our our work. And uh, yeah, I think that's exactly what you see here. It seems like that's exactly what, what's going on here um, with the Israelites. But, yeah. Well, I was thinking too, even in our New Testament reading where, you know, they're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come like Jesus promised. And they weren't just standing around, like they were devoting themselves to prayer and to gathering together. I don't know, you can apply that in a lot of different, like specific ways. And so I was thinking that this is just a principle that I should continue thinking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, work expecting great things from God. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's what we strive to do day in and day out. Well, and just like the other aspect of just taking initiative too. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you jump in, you don't know what's going to happen, but you trust that God is going to, there is a human element to God blessing you or to God working. Take initiative, be We've proactive. We've kind of talking about this for a little, like, yeah. I don't know. Do you have any comments about that? I no, think, I, I think I basically stole that from you from conversations <laughs> we've had in the past. Uh, that's okay. You can have it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> no, but kind of as you were saying that, uh, as far as, you know, being expectant for God to work, you know, or do things in ways that you're not expecting, but having faith and all that. I mean, it reminded me a couple chapters fast forward to uh, the second half of chapter six, all the way through chapter seven is a pretty, uh, I guess, cool, interesting story. Um, the I'll give, I'll try to be brief. A city is being uh, besieged and they're running out of food. So basically just waste what like a donkey head and dove poop is like selling for ridiculously high prices because everybody's starving and then a woman is tricked into cooking her own baby while another woman hides her baby instead of cooking it the next day so it's a really really bad scene Um, people I assume are starving to death everybody's ridiculously desperate and Elisha basically says hey we'll be eating eating pretty uh, like for pennies basically like there's going to be so much abundance of food and that is such a contrast when i mean people are cooking their own babies they're paying all the money they can for feces and then it's like hey but tomorrow you're going to be eating good for pennies like to think how in the world is that going to happen how is god going to make that happen and then just to see again through uh the actions that people take um God works it and it comes to be. I mean, four lepers figure, well, we're either going to die here, we go into the city where everybody's starving and we die anyways, or we can go to the camp of the army that's, you know, laying the siege and maybe they'll have mercy on us or maybe we'll die there. Like, we have nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. And they end up finding that uh, the camp was abandoned because God 
I don't what what was it? God God did something. He made noises or something of yeah. armies around and they got right. spooked and they just bolted and left all their stuff. Um yeah, and then the lepers kind of Yeah. They they mm-hmm. decide to share. They decide to be nice. They were like yeah. about to just run off with all of it. And then I guess I should back up a little bit because I'm skipping one really important part of the story is where once Elisha says this, like, hey, whatever, fine flour will be just pennies tomorrow. Um, the captain of the king is very doubtful and is right. like, how in the world is this going to happen? Mm-hmm. Uh, if God himself should make windows in heaven, he, like he's just completely doubting it. And he's told, oh, it's going to happen and you're going to see it, but you won't partake in it. Mm-hmm. And we do see once word spreads to the city, hey, they abandon all their stuff. There's food, there's riches, there's spoils. This guy just gets trampled at mm-hmm. uh, at the front gate, uh, and he doesn't get to partake in it. So I just found that story cool because that, I mean, like you're saying, if you're just thinking about it and meditating on it, it's like that's the big, you know, one of the biggest 180s out of nowhere from just a completely terrible situation and, you know, just boom. You have everything, and you don't see it coming. You have no clue how it can work, and it's just it's cool to think about that and like, oh, what, what, what do I not have enough faith for in my life? Or, you know, if I'm praying for things, I should have more faith that I mean, God can act in any way and make anything happen however He wants. Well, it seems like that's the theme here in these couple chapters because because it's such an unbelievable thing. You almost sympathize with the guy who didn't believe but just before that earlier in the chapter when there's these heavenly armies that are present and elijah opens the eyes of this i think it's his servant yeah and it wasn't that opening his eyes made these these armies appear they were already there it's just this guy did not have faith he didn't believe in these spiritual realities i think that's just the issue of faith is a theme that's kind of running through here, faith in God mm-hmm. and for him to... Yeah. Belief and unbelief. Yeah. Yeah, I like those lepers. They're like, let's go, let's <laughs> yeah. go dig some holes. Well, we're going to keep this <laughs> stuff. And they're like, well, I guess uh, we, should, maybe we, we, should, we can that. share. <laughs> yeah. I guess we'll tell the people that are just eating each other that there's a ton of food over here. They realize there's too much. They're like, yeah. oh, there's too much for us. We can't do this. I like, yeah. I like the rationale of the lepers, though. They're like, all right, we die here or we die here or we die there. Like, at least we got a Hail Mary's chance over here. Right. If we go to the enemy, maybe they'll have mercy on us. So, I mean, good on the lepers. Yeah, they, so they, they shared the good word of the riches to people who were starving. Yeah. I don't know if there's any other spiritual lessons we can take from that. But. Yeah. Well, and funny, I mean, you know, they were the least of the people because they were on the outside of the city, kicked out because they were lepers. And then, you know, the quote-unquote salvation of the city comes through like the dirtiest, most rejected people. It's like oh, that. Man. Even that is unlikely, you know. Mm-hmm. I love where you're going. That's so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Picking up on that, that um, belief, unbelief, um, having faith. I mean, going even back to Naaman here in chapter five as well. He was pretty, <laughs> pretty upset that he had to wash in what was it, the Damascus River, or was it the Jordan? The Jordan. Jordan was it. Yeah, he's like, wait, I have far better rivers to wash in. You're telling me I have to wash in this? And it's like, again, there needs to be a level of humility um, and of humbleness and obedience. And in doing so, he found salvation from the, what was it, the crusty skin, the leprosy, or whatever it was that he had on him. 
And uh, yeah, so I, I think that extends through throughout the writings here in Second Kings. And the flesh restored to him the flesh of a little child. Yeah, like a baby. Ooh, soft. It does kind of, uh, maybe this is a stretch, but like being born again, like he's got this new flesh. I don't no, I like eh, it. Going down into the water, being yeah. baptized, emerged. I think there's something that could be said there. Yeah, and I mean the humility, right? I think that's the factor. He had to go into a, like a kind of a dirty, nasty river, so to speak. Right. At least one that to him was despicable. <laughs> what do you think of this uh, servant? I don't know how you say it. Gehazi? Yeah, the one next to Elijah. Yeah, Elisha. So he yeah. seems like okay until this he point. Part, yeah. And then. I don't know if this is exposed of his like character or if it's just kind of a a weak moment for him. But either way, it's not good for him. You know, he mm-hmm, ends up mm-hmm. getting this leprosy. Right. That this other guy was just healed from because he was kind of playing the the odds here, trying to trying to benefit himself. Right. Is it safe to say that he was greedy for riches and I mean that's why he got cursed in the end here. I mean, he lied to the guy. I think he lied straight yeah, up so to the too. guy. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, the Lord was not happy with him in that. Chapter 8, Shunammite's land restorer. I mean, she gets brought up twice here. Mm-hmm. So probably should talk about her twice. She gets brought up the first time. I mean, she's just bringing in Elisha hospitably, letting him stay. You know, he's like, what do you want? And, you know... There's, like, nothing she wants except for, like, a son. And then so she conceives, has a son, and then I think it's, what, chapter 4, chapter 3, somewhere in there, she di- uh, he dies. He just suddenly just dies. Um, and then she goes to get Elisha. Elisha comes and just says, oh, just put my rod on his face and he'll be healed. But he's not healed. And then he has to go himself to the boy, stretch his body over him, and do some weird stuff, it yeah. sounds like. He breathed in him. Yeah, and then he left. breathed in his nostrils. Yeah. And he came back again and did it again. And, and then, then he was works. warm. And then yeah. he was warm suddenly. Yeah. Uh, what What did you guys think about that? <laughs> I, so much so much of this, I don't I don't know what to think of it. It's yeah. like, why, mm-hmm. why did he do that? Why did he think to do that? Be like, oh, this is going to make it work. Like, yeah. I don't know. A lot of it seems just arbitrary to me but yeah i mean you think about all of the miracles even some of the miracles jesus did where he Mm -hmm. was like making a paste and he put it on the guy's eyes like right why didn't he just say you're healed you know i wonder Mm -hmm. or or like the axe head floating it's like what he threw a stick right and then that made it float it's like well how did he know to throw the stick or (laughs) could he have also thrown i don't know a i don't know what else a rock but that would sink but i don't know it's like right right uh, so much of it seems really random and arbitrary. It's like, how did he know how to do that? Or did he mm-hmm. try throwing 14 other things in the lake that didn't work, and then they just left that out? And like, oh, yeah, it was the stick process of elimination. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, why, why God not. chooses to work through those means to, yeah. to save a person. Yeah. Like the, a, a certain formula. It does seem weird. Uh, yeah. Not well, quite. And why the details were included. Included, in right. That's more of the, mm-hmm. it's like, what are we, why didn't we just... Either yeah. way, we're taken. We should probably take the same conclusion, regardless of whatever yeah. method, right? Yeah, I mean, at, like an ultimate, just base level of what it would represent is like you got to do something for God to act. You know what I mean? It's like whether you're making a paste, throwing a stick, laying on a dead kid. It's like they're doing something, and then. 
God acts through their actions. I mean, that's just like very base level of what happens. But mm, mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. details, I don't know. I don't know how to make sense yeah. of the details. And my whole cop-out thing when I was reading this, I'm like, the only explanation I can come up with, I mean, you have one there too, Matthew, but it's just like, this is just basically foreshadowing what Jesus would do in far greater ways, um, where he would raise Lazarus just by speaking, not doing this weird stuff that Elisha's doing. You know, Elisha would raise the dead, but he would do it in in a in a way that would exert tons of effort, whereas Jesus would just say the word and it would be done. Um, but other than you know just foreshadowing what Jesus would do in a greater, far greater way, in all of these accounts. Um, yeah, again, I was just like, I don't, I don't know what to do with that. But I think, I think you guys have some good answers there. So yeah, moving to chapter nine for the next kind of couple chapters, uh, we got our guy Jehu. That's how I'm going with the pronunciation. Don't know if it's right. So we see Jehu here, who is going furiously like a madman through the land, um, really just wiping out um, a lot of the evil. Um, kind of, I don't know, what would you say, kind of evil sectors or evil groups um, that have been against the Lord for, in some situations, a few generations or longer. Um, but Jehu, he's just going around, he's wiping out whole lineages um, at a time, really, I mean, just dispensing God's judgment on enemies of the Lord. And, I mean, I... When I was reading through these couple chapters of Jehu, I was thinking to myself, this this would make a pretty good, intense movie. <laughs> you just got this guy going around just wiping folks out. I mean, it would it would have to be an R-rated film just for the graphic nature of all the killing. But, I mean, it's like this dude, he was quite a character to be able to just go town to town. I mean, he was just, there wasn't much resistance, I think, because he was so fierce he was just very successful. But anyways, I was thinking like that'd be a pretty intense movie. Uh, we got seventy heads in a basket at one point mm-hmm. um, for a certain part that he wipes out. Now uh, we can circle back to any of the, I guess, specifics that he does. Mm-hmm. Joshua, I had a question for you though in regards to our guy Jehu. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's a cool story. It's right after the cool story where. Baal, 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 mm-hmm. however it's pronounced. Right. Um, he tricks all of the followers of that <laughs> false god. He's like, hey, I'm going to be the biggest ball leader you've ever seen. So let's have this giant sacrifice, this giant ceremony. It's going to be awesome. Go, Baal, Baal, whatever. And he's like, don't make sure everybody's there. All these ball followers, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. this is going to be it. Nobody can be missing. Right. And man, he just tricks them all and just slaughters all of them and burns down the temple of the false God. So I mean, like think about that. That'd make a great part of a movie. <laughs> I mean, they got to, we got to make this happen or somebody does anyways. So right after that, uh, in 10, starting in 1028 mm-hmm. says thus Jehu wiped out, Ball from Israel, but Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, mm-hmm. uh, which he made Israel to sin, that is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. Mm-hmm. Then the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, 
your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. Mm-hmm. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel. With all his heart, he did not return from the sins of Jeroboam, mm-hmm. uh, which he made Israel sin. Right. So he does, you know, great things as far as wiping out enemies of the Lord. Mm-hmm. But then he's like not really doesn't really end up following God, but mm-hmm. he, or the true God. Right. But yet he's blessed and commended. I don't know. That I was really like what? Yeah. Like wait, like yeah. He did some really good things, right. but then he's really unfaithful, but then God exactly. blesses him. So I didn't know what to make of that. What do you make of that? Yeah. Let me just throw in a quick study Bible note. <laughs> it, it's, I'm, I'm not sure what I think about it. It says that evidently what Jehu had done that is right far outweighs what he continued to do that was wrong. I don't huh. know. It kind of hit me a weird, huh. well, his good was more than his bad, so God just blessed him. God doesn't always work like that, right? Right, right. That's interesting. And I mean, maybe that was the case, but again, like trying to make sense of it, it's like, well, what are, what am I supposed to think about that? What am I supposed to take away that? How am I supposed to view and align my life with stories like this or right, right. lessons or yeah. whatever? Yeah, yeah. It, it does seem that there's a tiering of of what is most significant to the Lord and what isn't. And it seems that he got one of them really, really right. I mean, and that is eliminating Baal worship, as Aaron likes to call it, I think, um, completely from the land, which has been just plaguing it all from the the hundreds, thousands of years. I don't know how long it's been here, um, but he was right to get that done and just completely crush it. But the the authors are, are always going to let you know, but by the way, this isn't the Messiah we're looking for. He's imperfect. And uh, because of that, he we need to know that he failed in many ways, and King after king after king after king, we're waiting for the Messiah, and the Messiah is the one that's going to save Israel. And again, all of them are just epic fails, basically. And even the ones that do do something right, you need to know still, they they still messed up on these other areas. So I think it's a combination of letting us, the reader, know, hey, he did do something really right here, but just know that this is not the one we were looking for. He he still had issues, and uh, he's he's not the Messiah to come. Um, I, I think there's part of that under underlying um, there in the writing, too, as uh, we're waiting for that Messiah page after page after page that was promised. And we think it's in David, we think it's Solomon, we think it's these kings of old, and just time and time again, we're just disappointed, um, including with him right here. But that's my off-the-cuff off answer without any <laughs> research oh, on like this it. passage. So, No, I like it. Yeah, I like that, too. And I was just thinking about, I don't know if this is right or not either, but it's like, we're all imperfect. We all sin in some ways. Like, don't let that deter you from doing big things correctly still. Like, don't get discouraged. Like, I don't know. It's like, he, he was he was getting out there. He was putting He was putting work in for God and doing a lot right, obviously, because he was so blessed, even though he was messed up in other ways. So, I don't know. I don't know if that's a accurate takeaway or not but it's like don't let what you screw up distract you from still doing things right i guess i don't know i don't know if that's accurate or not mm-hmm. i don't know if that makes sense yeah. am i making sense no yeah. i think that's yeah. a good takeaway yeah and, and again it's just i mean the greatest commandment love the lord with all of your heart soul mind and strength it seems like he does but then he doesn't 
And I think that's just the proclivity of our hearts to wander. And there's a, a warning for all of us, um, even with the David, you know, who did all these wonderful things. Our, our heart is so prone to wander away from the God that we love and serve. And so in a moment of time where we can get everything right, um, we can know that we can still slip, slip and fall and not be careful, as it says in verse 31, to follow the instructions of the Lord with all of his heart, right? Verse 31. And uh, I, I think that's the warning for us there. So, yeah, I mean, I think right. I mean, be zealous for the Lord, pursue obedience, be fervent in righteousness. And even when while you're walking in that way, just know you can still slip because our hearts are so prone to, to wander, as the song Come Thou Fount tells us so, so often. So as we move to our New Testament passage, Acts 1 through 7, um, we see here uh, the Holy Spirit was promised, and uh, the Holy Spirit's about to show up. But first, you can't have an odd number of apostles or disciples. I mean, they're apostles now, I guess. Um, so, yeah, they, they figure it out. Uh, Matthias wins out, so he's in. Forget the other guy. That's You don't remember the losers, so I forget what that guy's name was. But uh, Matthias is in. And then chapter 2, we see the Holy Spirit come. Uh, it was like a wind and flames lit on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And uh, they were given utterances uh, in other tongues to speak. I guess what I found either interesting or helpful is that um, you know, when they were when they were speaking in tongues, other people of other languages were understanding them, and they were very blown away by that. So it was, you know, a directly useful, miraculous uh, event, not just chaotic. And well, I don't know what they're saying, but they're saying gibberish. So it, you know, it seems seems very. Just helpful and organized, I guess, for what it what it was. It wasn't just random jibber jabber babble, mm-hmm. you know, useless speech. Uh, what else should we take away from this passage, Joshua? <laughs> what else should we take away? Um, I think this as the start of the church. I mean, you have this miraculous event, um, just kind of there at the start to mark um, the church age, really. I think and as people are, are seeing this miraculous event, I mean, it draws your attention to it. I mean, there's no, nothing that's ever happened like this before. In chapter 2, verse 42, there are a couple dimensions here of what the early church were practicing. How does our church, Resurrection Church, devote ourselves to these things? Teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. Just an interesting verse I, it made me stop and think about why these four, what, I don't know. And then I was thinking about our church. So why are these these things emphasized? And, and how does our church try to emphasize these things and benefit from them? Yeah, I mean, devoting themselves to the, the apostles' teaching. I mean, they're seeing it as from God himself, the words that they're teaching. And, um, I mean, they, they saw the importance of it. They kept the letters of, of Paul, of the gospel writers, and... Um, of several others, but like Hebrews, we don't know. But they saw the importance at the the very outset, and uh, they devote themselves to it, treating it as God's word. It seems at the beginning, and so we strike strive to do the same here at Resurrection Church. Um, we try to teach the word of God. 
um, from the apostles and of Jesus Christ um, over and over again, because that's how the church flourishes as it um, thrives on the word of God, which brings life. Uh, to the fellowship, I mean, we, we seek to have fellowship every Sunday, every time we gather together. And, um, I mean, as you know from Paul's words elsewhere, the body of Christ is the church, and we're interconnected to benefit one another. And so you have the analogy of the hands, the feet, the legs, the eyes, the mouth, the nose, um, all of that. And being interconnected, we need each other. And so we seek to have fellowship, understanding our need, our interdependence upon one another. Um, and so we, we also strive for that. And then the breaking of bread, um, remembering, perhaps this is a reference to the Lord's Supper, um, but remembering what Christ has done for us, which unifies us together in unity and love um, as the focal point of why we gather. We're, we're one in Christ. And then with prayer, as we know, Jesus taught us to pray continually, um, recognizing that we can accomplish nothing apart from dependence uh, upon the Father. And so these elements we strive to um, include in the church because we see it as a New Testament pattern, um, especially here in Acts. And uh, that's, that's why we, we try to value it as much as we can. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, the the context to me seemed like it was, it's a f- obvious in, in fellowship, but mm-hmm. these were group activities. These were yeah, communal. Communal, mm-hmm. right? So Christ's body gathered, and that's what they that's what they thought was important. Yeah, they, they saw it from as incredibly important from the start. And it's good for us to recognize that as we pattern ourselves out of not out of Israel and their patterns, but uh, more or less uh, the New Testament church. Yeah, speaking of, of Israel's pattern, uh, when we get to chapter 3, there's this striking phrase in verse 15 where it says, you killed the author of life. Mm, or another, mm-hmm. I think in the CSB says the source, source of, of life. Source of life, yeah. That yeah. was another one where I was like, whoa, step back. That's... That's some pretty strong language there. I mean, there's a seriousness. I mean, we can we talk so often, I think, about the death of Jesus. It's like, yeah, you know, Jesus died, whatever. But, like, you read these words, like, no, they killed the author of life, the source of life, and that's serious. Um, and in a sense, we indirectly killed Jesus, too, mm-hmm. because our sins caused him uh, to suffer and die in our place. So, no, I, I think you're right to pause there and, and reflect on, on that. And if you're not, then maybe you're not quite understanding what, you know, the significance of Jesus's death and how bad that truly was. So looking at the end of chapter four, moving into chapter five, um, there's a small section at the end of chapter four um, where all the believers and kind of working with the apostles says the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And then it kind of goes on to say how, you know, there were no needs. If somebody had a need, the need was met. Uh, They were just, you know, working together as one unit, really completely looking out for each other. And more or less, you could say here, the way that they're describing the scene is everything's perfect. If somebody needs something, somebody's going to step up unselfishly out of love because of their unity that they have in Christ and they're this tight-knit unit, um, you know, they're going to help them out. So I would say more or less, you know, this is a temporary perfect situation that they have going on. And then you move right into chapter five and, Mm -hmm. you know, 
some people Sparks sold sold some land yeah. and it changes and they held back some of the money they didn't give all the money to the apostles um, and then they lied about it and they get confronted and just they both just drop dead from judgment <laughs> for lying and withholding the um, all of the the full amount of the money and I just found it interesting. I guess just the image of it, you have, like I said, more or less a a perfect situation going for a period of time where everybody's being selfless, all the needs are being met, you know, just out of love for one another. But, you know, and, and it says why he, Peter asks them, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? And it's just these people in a perfect situation, you know, Satan always finds some way to get his snake slithering in the garden of perfection to try to bring it down and ruin it. And that's, I think that's just, that always happens. Wherever there's a perfect garden, you always got to look out for a snake. And I think that's true in life. Whenever you're like, oh man, everything's finally going great. It's like something happens. There's always something that comes up where there's like a snake in the garden or something you didn't foresee. Something always goes bad. So I, I don't know. I liked this, mm-hmm. those sections together where it's like no, nothing's ever perfect. And when you think it's perfect, you got to look out because something is going to slither in and mess everything up. It, it's just a fallen world. It always happens. Well, what happened to the, the slithering snake right here in this chapter? Dead. Yeah, they got struck dead immediately. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's something being communicated there in a large way that God's people are to be holy. He's not going to tolerate impurity in his new covenant people, the church. And so I think um, you're right. There is that tendency, and we're supposed to be stamping out the serpent. We're supposed to be crushing it. And we do that, thankfully, in the form of church discipline. Um, This is not the norm to tell people, hey, you lied to God, you lied to us, you're dead. I mean, and then we just kill them. We don't do that. Thankfully, we we exercise church discipline. Have you ever had anybody drop dead in front of you? Uh, Like, no. During church discipline, okay, that's good. No, <laughs> no, no, I don't think I've had anyone. Period. Drop, oh, okay. drop dead on front of me. Okay. But yeah, as I, I remember actually this passage. I think there might be a sermon on on our website. Dan Miller preached this at our church. Um, he when he was just visiting, and it was just to encourage us in um, being a pure church and you know one that takes seriously the call of God to us and. He preached this passage, and I was like wondering if he was going to give us apostolic authority to, you know, call people, call on people, and you know, have them drunk. <laughs> Obviously, he didn't go there. Um, so, but yeah, no, it's. Um, I think the uniqueness of this event, marking the start of the church, is, is just God saying in a loud voice, "My people are to be different, and it's not going to be tolerated. It should not be tolerated," and that's like the exclamation point. Um, if there ever was one. So I don't know how much more serious he can get than someone dropping dead yeah. just for lying. Um, so, And they deviated from God's plan and God's perfection, and mm-hmm. that ultimately leads to death. Eventually, for them, it was pretty immediate. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I think it, it's good that it shows, hey, mm-hmm. you deviate, it just leads to death. Right, right. Eternal death in the end, and we we try to warn people again in the form of church discipline, lovingly calling them back uh, to be um, what God calls them to be in Christ. Well, um, that's all the time we nope. have <laughs> for a week. I, oh. I got to talk about one more thing. 
Okay, so towards the end of chapter five mm-hmm. in the book of Acts, verses 40 and 41, we see the apostles are in front of the Sanhedrin and they're getting beaten and charged because they're speaking in Jesus' name and preaching. Mm-hmm. And they left the council because of some light punishment because some good advice from Gamaliel and they were rejoicing because they got beaten and they were counted worthy to be able to suffer dishonor for for Jesus Jesus sake and you've been talking about suffering mm. in mm-hmm. a the current adult bible class mm. mm-hmm. and i know uh, this kind of coincides with what Aaron preached beginning of his sermon series in the book of James counting having joy in mm-hmm, mm-hmm. circumstances. And I was thinking about both of those things when, when I read this, mm-hmm. when I read these verses. Yeah. And I don't know, what comments do you have about you know, not shrinking back from suffering, mm. doing the right thing? Yeah. The Bible doesn't call us to suffer for the sake of suffering, mm-hmm. but that is a result in this fallen world of yeah. walking faithfully to Christ. Faithfully to Christ. Yeah, so mm-hmm. how do we do that? How do we have boldness like the apostles did earlier in this chapter. Right. And how do we ultimately rejoice yeah. in the, that faithfulness that ultimate, that may result in suffering? Yeah. I don't know if I have one answer to that because it's going to look different culture to culture. Um, but I'm assuming you're talking about our own culture here and what that might look like. I, I, I don't know all the different outlets this could take or different forms it could take on. Um, but... I mean, rejoicing that you were you were treated shamefully because you identified with Christ is something that we need to learn to take joy in. That's not natural. And I experienced being treated shamefully by my coworkers because, um, I mean, I identify as a follower of Jesus. And they, will, for whatever reason, think that's completely asinine and completely ludicrous. I, there's a, I several atheist coworkers, very disgruntled, grew up with, for whatever reason, uh, hate Christians. They just, they just do. They have no tolerance whatsoever. Um, at the psych ward, night shifts, talk with them. They would be very antagonistic when they found out I was a pastor. And, and it, was, it was interesting. Um, but let me tell you what, I did not count it joy immediately that they, they were treating me very rudely. And again, nothing like they were here in, in the text. They're being beaten. Okay, that's nothing like I was experiencing. But I was experiencing verbal, you know, lashing, so to speak. And, uh, but it's something we have to train. And you're like, you know what? This is a part of following Christ, and I shouldn't be surprised, and I can count it joy. Um, I can suffer in this way for, for knowing him, just identifying as a believer was enough to bring this ridicule upon myself. Um, so I think, in one sense, being bold enough to to let pe- others know that, hey, yeah, I am a follower of Christ, happy to talk about it with you if you're willing. And uh, I think just being faithful to interact with others um, on a conversation about what they believe spiritually um, and taking that boldness to to make it known that you are of Christ. Like, do people around you know that you belong to him? Um, and like <laughs> our neighbors next door, do they know I'm a follower of Jesus or is it like something I'm like hiding or keeping in the closet, you know, so was, you don't have to be brash, right? You don't have to be out there. Hey, everyone, I'm a Christian, you know, check me out. But at the same time, you know, on the other hand, you don't want to be a closet Christian, you know, um, so to speak. So I, I think you have to just genuinely engage with people, um, about 
what your supreme treasure is. And if that's Christ, it should take the form of conversing, getting to know neighbors, and then eventually saying, yeah, you know, I go to church, I, I love Jesus, and I don't know what, you know, conversation route you're taking here, but um, boldly speaking, what you find most supremely valuable. It's what we all do, whether it's music, sports, hobbies, what have you. And for us as Christians, it's, it should be Jesus. So I don't, I don't have a straightforward answer because I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. great. So if someone's listening and they would consider themselves a closet Christian, mm-hmm. how should they start to diagnose? So again, I would just ask the question, like, have you ever, ever, ever talked with your coworkers about Jesus at all? Like, do they even know you're a Christian? Do they, okay, maybe they know you go to church because you've mentioned it once or twice and you were like felt super ashamed. <laughs> I mean, maybe those are some hints. You don't need to be ashamed. Um, but I would just ask the question, like, do people even know that I belong to Jesus? And am I um, reaching out to them? You know, am I having hospitality, trying to build relationships with um, that goal of sharing my love of Jesus with them? And because uh, that's part of knowing Christ, right? If we know Christ, then we we love people as He loved us. Um, and if we don't, then the other the the opposite might be true as well that we don't know Jesus as we should. And that doesn't come natural to us, no, like you said, no, right at the beginning of when you start to answer the question. And, yeah. you know, even we see the apostles praying for boldness. Right. They didn't right. rely on their own strength. They weren't skipping into the area where they got <laughs> flogged and in the prison. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I think they they needed to rely on God's strength to, to be faithful. And I think mm-hmm. we need to do the exact same thing. Yeah, exactly. And encourage one another in those moments and coming together say, hey, you know, I'm getting persecuted at work or what have you, and just, you know, encouraging one another, say, you know what, we can count that joy and, and pray with each other, and because we need each other when those moments happen, because rejection will come. It's coming more and more frequently. Um, as you just take the bare minimum steps in following Jesus, you, you're starting to get persecuted more and more for that. Do you know where you can receive that type of encouragement and community? <laughs> Resurrection Church in Burnsville. Come on down and see us and Joshua on Sundays. Bible class at 9 a.m., a great sermon at 10 a.m. Well, that's going to do it this week, week 26. We'll wrap it up there. Thanks for joining us. If you would like any other information about the church, you can find that at resurrectionmn.org.